Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we are joined by Christina Cleveland. Oh, y'all, I mean, you know, I've said this before. I don't really fangirl a lot, but I do fangirl with Christina because I see, honestly, I see her power. I see the ways that she has been transforming in front of all of us um, and has had her own decolonizing journey that I actually really do believe is kind of emblematic for the, the, the time that we're in. Christina is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, and also um, its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which we're going to hear about both of those in the course of our conversation today. Now, I invited Christina to speak to us today precisely because she has been living a pilgrimage of transformation recently, kind of this decolonizing experience, this decolonizing journey. And one of the products of that transformational journey was Christina's awe-inspiring book, God is a Black Woman, which dropped into bookstores shelves last February 2022. Um, She's also built this powerful Patreon community that is really doing the work of decolonizing their faith and their minds. Um, and but folks, look, this is the era we are in. It is time to decolonize our minds, okay? So we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and tweet to me or Instagram to me or Facebook to me, um, Lisa S. Harper on, on Twitter and Instagram and Lisa Sharon Harper on Facebook. Also Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us, um, basically everywhere. So keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. All right, Christina, so we're going to dive in. I'm so excited to be talking with you. Thank you for saying yes. I'm honored. Thank you for inviting me. And it feels fun to be on this program because my life is a freedom road. Hello, somebody. Feels like alignment. <laughs> it is. It is alignment. And I think you're totally right. I've seen that. I've seen that. I Before we get into your your, your latest part of that Freedom Road journey. I want to just take us back to the beginning of your faith journey. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of your faith story? Like, what are the, what's the beginning? Hmm, what's the beginning? <laughs> well, <laughs> I was raised in a Christian family. My parents are pastors, and actually, on both sides of my family, my grandfather, great grandfather, and great great grandfathers were all ministers in the Kojic Church, Church of God in wow, Christ. Wow, really? Yeah. So oh there's God. a law, a strong lineage, lots of bishops and lots of pastors within Kojic. And so, oh um, yeah. So you know, definitely a ministry family. Yeah. Also very, um, very devoted. Very, um, you know, like there. One of the things I loved about the family I grew up in is. Yeah being people of faith meant that we lived differently. And so there was definitely a discipleship aspect that I still carry with me now. Yeah. You know, how does, how does this practically look? Not just what are we talking about? 
Right. And then, but also um, that Pentecostal element too, you know, Mm -hmm. like believing that God is going to do something, believing that the Holy Spirit is actually alive and at work, having expectation. So that was a big part of my story growing Mm -hmm. up and also holiness. Holiness. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're doing Kojic. You're going to be holy. That's for sure. Yeah. So there was a lot of, there was a huge emphasis on holiness. A lot of that probably came from a place of fear. If I'm honest, looking back on it, you know, okay. like, yeah. um, you have to make sure you're right before God so that you don't experience mm. these bad things. Oh, wow. So it was you know, very much a bit of a legalistic bent to yeah. it. And so it was the mix of all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I ask you a question yeah. about that? Because I know that the Kojic denomination, I mean, it's, it is one of the most, one of the earliest manifestations of, of the black church. Right. And it has a really rich history and, and you're right in that holiness tradition. I'm wondering like what, like your, your last book is God as a black woman and I know that the Kojic tradition, particularly in the Pentecostal tradition, really did have, um, it, it had this, um, in some ways, decolonizing experience in the beginning of the Pentecostal movement with women leaders. Like you had lots of women mm-hmm. leaders. How mm-hmm. did you, did you see women leaders growing up in the Kojic church? I did. Not, yeah, not in the coach. So I can say, I, I, don't, I don't know that I understood this as a kid, but now that I'm a social psychologist, I understand. So of course, as a grassroots organization, there were all sorts of ways in which there was a subverting of hierarchy and creating space for mutuality and all that good stuff. But usually as organizations grow beyond one generation, you mm. start to see the higher the hierarchies form because that's more efficient. Right. And organizations usually last because they're efficient in the context of our capitalistic world. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with the Kojic church. So even though um, at Azusa Street in the beginning of the night of the 1900s, mm-hmm. there were it was mostly women. There were some men, but it was a lot of women who were leading the revival and that's preaching. Right. Um, mm-hmm. To this day, women can't be pastors in the Kojic church. Women can't be bishops in the Kojic church. So you can be a missionary. So there are labels that you can that give you leadership capacity. Wow. You can, Women can even preach in the Kojic church. Like my yeah. grandmother would preach every mother's day. So, you know, but it's not, um, it's a little bit of a, it's there's, it's not a real power role. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my great aunt Ernestine Reams. I love that. Aunt Ernestine. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) She's awesome. Uh, where she was, she, yeah, she's, she's, she just, she died last year, but she, she was my grandfather's sister Oh, she died of old age. I mean, she had, she lived a long, wonderful life, but she was my grandfather's sister and her, their father was a, was a huge Kojic Bishop, my great grandfather. Okay. And she is probably the most powerful preacher I've ever seen. Um, sometimes people ask me, how did you speak? And I just point to YouTube videos of her because I just, it's just, um, ancestral, you know, like she just passed, but she left the Kojic church and started her own church. And it actually is like the most prominent church in Oakland. And and when she died last, this time last year in Oakland, the whole city flew the flag at half mass in honor of her. So yeah. What is her name? Ernestine Ernestine Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland Reams. Mm -hmm. Like she's in all, she's in all the church history books. Like she's, She's like preached all that she preached. She used to preach all the time at like T. Jakes's church. She's like this powerhouse. And that's my great aunt. Oh, wait, wait, I was going to say this. I'm just going to, what? Yeah. I mean, it's bananas. Your family. Yeah. So the legacy. Yeah. And like, 
Even my great, oh even God. my great grandfather, you know, um, his church in Berkeley was the church where all the Black Panther programs ran out of. No. Mm-hmm. And Bobby, wow. Bobby, and Bobby Hutton's funeral was at his church. And yeah, I mean, so it's just oh my this, gosh. this really incredible legacy in the Oakland area. But yeah. for example, she she knew she could never be her father, even though she was her father. Yeah. <laughs> so she yeah. left, started her own black deno- black Pentecostal denomination, became a bishop in her own right, and actually yeah. probably left a larger imprint on the city of Oakland than even her father did. But she had to leave the Kojic church to do it, just to show she, you. Yeah. So, you know, the structure of the Kojic church but so the the downside is you know the Kojic church still doesn't really uh, like support women in ministry fully the upside yeah. is i grew up seeing powerful women preaching because she was a pastor yeah. of this this mega church in oakland well it's striking something that's really striking to me is that your journey is not one that is just about decolonizing i guess white people's white supremacy but you really are speaking prophetically to the freaking church like yeah. Everybody, like the 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 colonized church, no matter yeah. what the color of the church is, mm-hmm. and that even goes to your own, like your yeah. own family's church. That's deep. Well, that well, I think that's what was so confusing to me as a child was that white Jesus was just as alive and well in the black churches and the white church spaces because I really Whoa. straddled both. I really did because you know oh. I would we would go to Aunt Ernestine's church and we'd go to Big Dee Dee's church and we'd spend time in those black church spaces. Right. But I was also going to Awana, <laughs> you know. No, yeah, were because, you really? <laughs> yeah, because wait, wait, you got it, you got it. Oh, yeah, what Awana is. Awana know. is it stands for approved workmen are not ashamed. Awana. A-W-A-N-A. And it's like this very conservative, it's very, it's kind of like a white Baptist after school program. It happens in the evenings once a week and you learn a lot of Bible verses, but the Bible verses you learn are like extremely Calvinist. Of course they don't say, they don't, they don't situate themselves in the theological spectrum at all. They just act like they really are are the truth. That actually um, is true. That is true. They don't, and I would say that's, they just act like they're evangelical, you know, just basic, whatever. <laughs> but it's like the first verse you learn is Romans 3 23 for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right. of the glory of God. And right. like, you know, and so you're learning these like very interesting verses, but it's also fun because there's a game time that I just like. Right. That's how they get the kids in. That's how, yeah. So it's also fun. But so I was going to that. I was going to Christian, you know, evangelical Christian schools because Christian schools typically are evangelical. Um, I was, you know, we were also members at an Assemblies of God church. And so I was getting kind of the white Pentecostal take. You really did get a lot of the Mm -hmm. white church experience. I did YWAM. I did. um, You did. Wait, my heart just skipped a beat. That's YWAM? YWAM, When did you do YWAM? Because wait, wait, wait. I took a year off in high school or college or yeah like what, what was I, that about I, I was I was going to YWAM camps all through all the growing up but in between high school and college I took a year off and did a discipleship training school with YWAM in Spain oh my and God. so like yeah and then you know of course like then wow. I was teaching it so it's kind of interesting because my evangelical yeah. street cred is pretty um it's actually there. You yeah. Do yeah, you do. You went yeah. through all the power, not all, but many yeah. of the parachurch organizations, yeah. as well mm-hmm. as some of the most, exactly. you know, center denominational yeah. stuff with Awana. That's yeah. so deep. Oh, wow. And for people, and for people who don't know what YWAM is, it stands for Youth with a Mission, and it's a, um, it's a, it's a American-based 
evangelical missions organization that, you know, at at this point I would classify as um, colonial. I think at the time, you know, I thought we were just bringing Jesus to people in Mexico or whatever, but um, it's short, it's short-term missions based. And so um, it's not clear to me that anything sustainable is happening. I think that the main thing that I have come to in the last couple of years, really maybe last five years, and and really, especially this last, I don't know, it's been very clarifying the last couple of years, is that pretty much the whole church is colonial, like really like Mm -hmm. colonized. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about evangelism, sorry, Mm -hmm. when we talk about evangelism or mission, oftentimes what we really are talking about is colonial work. Unless mm-hmm. they have done really, really, really deep work and very few people have or organizations have actually done the necessary work to decolonize. No, it's too scary. Yeah. There's too much loss. Yeah. I remember in 2016, I believe, me and like a bunch of people, Leroy Barber was there and um, a bunch of us, we all went over to um, Cape Town. And Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so like... um. And I remember, I think it one one of the townships. I want to say it was Molenberg. It's like it's like a colored township primarily, and okay. it's pri- and it's mostly Muslims. Um, one of the poorer townships, and we were there, and there were all these Hillsongs people from Australia who had moved in to wow. Molenberg, and um, co- basically colonized slash proselytized to all of these brown Muslim. South Africans. And what was fascinating was like, you walk into the Hillsong homes and it's like, you're in Pottery Barn. Oh, so they like brought all of their (laughs) janky white crap from Australia into this like poor township. No. And and then all of the kids who had all these brown kids, they're colored, right? So like they're brown. Yeah. All these kids that were in their like, you know, little circle of influence, they were talking like they were Australian. They Ugh. were dressed. They were dressing like no! surfers. And like I just Stop remember, th- no. like the the only songs they knew were Hillsong. So like I was like, this is just colonization. Like this there's literally like you're literally turning these kids yeah. into Australian Hillsong people. Like that's what they are. In every way, their their sense of design, their sense of fashion, their sense mm. of ver- vernacular. Like, mm. And meanwhile, the white oh. Hillsongs people hadn't adopted any of, they hadn't no. immersed themselves at all, right? No. It was, no. and I was just like, yeah. this is so gross. You know, I think probably like, probably most of them most likely knew where their best scones places were in town. And, well, well, they, well like they, they had were, to leave. Well, they had to leave Molenberg to even get that because there's no scone places in Molenberg. They had hello. to go over to, the, to the white part of Cape Town <laughs> to get that. Yeah, I was just like, why are we even here? Wow. Wow. It looks like you hate these people and are trying to change them. Can yeah. I just say that it's easier for us to see that right overseas? It's it's easier for us. It's easier for me to see that in Cape Town and in South African um, space. When I look back at my own, like I look back at my own journey in the whole parachurch world, girl, (laughs) I was talking to somebody recently about like the whitification of Lisa Sharon Harper. Mm. Um, The whitification that happened when I was in college four years in CCC, Campus Crusade for Christ. And I mean, I went in, I came in one way and I came out so whitified and I'm fine. In fact, what we'll do is we'll put a picture. We'll put a picture of this in the in the show notes on the on the website. Mm-hmm. That 
Well, you see how I came in and my, 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 my senior year picture in high school. And then you see my, my senior year picture in, in college. And I was a theater major, but mm. the people who were doing the yearbook were so confused by my picture. They actually said I was an accountant. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I honestly think it's, it's, gen, it's cultural genocide. That's what it is. That is what it is. I mean, that was an act yes. of violence uh, per- yes. perpetrated upon you. Yeah, yeah. People can't. People who are listening can't see my face, but just the sorrow because yeah. it's true. Yes. And That's many right. of us, I'm like you. Many of us tried to, had to survive. Yeah, and we would only be embraced by these groups that I would now ca- classify as cults. You know, um, because if you don't conform, you mm-hmm. are not embraced. If you don't conform in every way, you are not embraced. Especially your politics. And to be embraced means you are saved. Right. So there's an extra piece. It's not like we're just trying to join a sorority or something. Like for many of us, we were, our our actual salvation was on the line. That's how we understood it. And so I had to die. You had to die to your blackness in order to be saved. I mean, when you think about that in its gravity, mm. it is genocide. My God. I mean, I literally, my, my, my body right now is tingling because you are speaking the absolute truth. And it's not, it's not truth anybody wants to hear, but it is the truth, Ruth. So, I, so now I want to ask you, what was the cost for you? Like you had yeah, a similar. white education journey. Mm-hmm. What was it? What did that look like for you? Well, I was part of navigators in college. So ah, not and you know, yes. I was I was friendly with the CCC folks because you know, but it's all you know, it's all the same folks. Um, yeah, but I was part much. of navigators and it was very similar. You know, I there were I would run up against, I would have questions, right? And mm-hmm. but I would learn very quickly, you'll get rebuked if you yes. if you speak up. So I, I would I would questions like why it seems like because navigators is fairly conservative or, or or was I don't know what the situation is now because I don't really care That's but true. like but w- our our head leader couldn't be female there were there were like rules around that right right the same and, with crusade yeah, yeah. Yes. okay so it's like there could be a staff person who was female because we needed somebody to talk to the girls but yes. she couldn't actually rise to the top whatever and I remember having questions about that because I was at Dartmouth College and I'm like I'm here planning to run the world like hello so yeah so I don't understand why my Bible study leader who's on staff with navigators can't also run the world. She's dope. Like she's forming (laughs) me. Um, and I just remember Mm. getting a very clear unspoken signal Mm. that that was not allowed. Those questions that that was rebellious. Uh, You need to, you need to return to scripture and focus on what matters, you know, that kind of stuff. And because I had been raised in a home where um, my salvation was dependent on other people saying I was worthy of it. Yeah. I cared what they thought. Isn't that something? Because the locus of my morality was always outside of me, whether it was my dad, whether it was my pastor, whether it was my, my leader for, you know, navigators, my sacredness was always on trial and I needed someone from the outside who was an authority figure to affirm my sacredness. So when I heard, okay, Christina, don't, don't ask those questions. I just would quiet. So the questions would just get buried really. They were still there, mm-hmm. but they would, I just would quiet down. So was there a moment, a revelation that kind of catalyzed your decolonization? There were several, there were a series mm-hmm. of moments. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think, I think the first 
I mean, there were a lot, of course, leading up to it, but I think a very powerful one was 2012 when Trayvon Martin was shot and killed right. by George Zimmerman. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think too. I'm a typical millennial in that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm because, not even a millennial. I'm a Gen X. And right. that for me was like a, like really like a scales off the eyes, but it wasn't just Trayvon. It was actually, I don't know if this was the case for you because I mean, most people didn't even know Trayvon had died until the trial. And then after the trial, when when George Zimmerman was let off and the justification for him being let off was that Trayvon used the weapon that he had, which was the concrete under his feet. So he couldn't even walk on concrete and not have a weapon. And that's something else. And then so now that now Trayvon is the one responsible for his death and um, stand your ground basically undercuts the civil rights amendment, which gives us the right Mm -hmm. to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but the month before that, we had the Supreme Court undercutting the Voting Rights Act. So that's the, the second major accomplishment of the civil rights movement. And this, the Friday before that, before that judgment came down on sat on Sunday, the the Congress tried to um, eviscerate food stamps and basically entitlements for, for poor people out of the budget. They tried to take it out of the budget on that mm-hmm. Friday. So that was the third major accomplishment of the civil rights mm-hmm. movement was the war on poverty. So I was like, oh my God, like they are literally attacking the civil mm-hmm. rights movement in 2012 mm-hmm. um, and 2013. So what what for you? What was the what was the catalyst for you? you said it was it was Trayvon. So what? Yeah, happened you know, you? I was I was you know I was thirty one. I was actually working. In, you know, I was speaking at that time and starting to do work in the in the evangelical church around racial justice and divisions. I mean, at the time, I think we called it racial reconciliation. Um, and I think it was just a big wake up call when I saw the hordes of white people who claimed to be my brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ. Okay. And just completely, completely denying the black perspective. I mean, and to me, this felt powerful because to me, it felt like this was the first time there was a national conversation. I mean, social media existed at that point. Information was a lot more accessible. There was a national conversation where there was clearly a black perspective and a white perspective. Mm -hmm. And to see these people who claim to love me and claim to pray for me and claim to all these things, just completely deny and not even be curious about mm-hmm. any other, anything else. That was a huge catalyst for me. Mm. Do you remember, because I also have like a scales off moment. Do you remember your scales off moment when you just saw clearly there were no more questions? Um, I think later. So I think that happened later. That was like the beginning of an opening. I still kept doing the work. I was still listening to whack black evangelicals who, so what I did, what I did was I, I saw, I saw the, I saw the disconnect. Uh I saw the lack of integrity and I did exactly what I was trained to do. Right. As as someone who's, you know, oppressed, fill in the gap, Christina, Mm. blame the victim. I need to be more gracious. I need to be some, a black Evangelical past megachurch pastor, I forget his name. I think he's in like Memphis or something. He said, reconcilers are bridges and bridges get stepped on. Right. So now I had, now I had a spirituality to go along with my oppression. I had a cross theology. I literally had a cross theology to explain why I was being 
oppressed, silenced, walked all over, kicked all over, and why mm. it was still important for me to keep turning the other cheek. I mean, that's what Jesus would have done. So mm. then, I, so I basically just created a whole, I mean, this is why I know I am a brilliant theologian. I can make a <laughs> theology out of anything. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. <laughs> my theological so imagination can go anywhere. And so I needed to make sense of the disconnect. And so I yeah. built a theology to make sense of it. And I did that for several more years. I was speaking at all these places where I was just a mascot and I knew they didn't actually care about what I think. I knew, I knew deep down inside, but I would still say to myself, you know what, Christina, like you just need to go and be a servant and you just need to go Mm -hmm. and serve and love these people. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but then I think the, uh, there was more awakening around black lives matter because that was three, four years later. Um, And there was more of a national conversation and more people were mobilized. And then I, yet I would still come up against these same issues. And then there was more awakening around me too. Oh, right. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. because up until Black Lives Matter, I always had to choose between being a woman or mm-hmm. being a black person mm-hmm. because in the women's circles, even in the Christian world, there was a lot of anti-blackness. And there were the, the people who were leading those movements were not, their anti-racist leadership skills were not up to par at that point. So I'd say, for example, Rachel Held Evans, right? Like not trying to dishonor the dead, but she was on her journey and she died young. And there were several times where she tried to get me to come to her things, her like feminist things. And I I would have conversations with her and be just like, Rachel, I don't trust your anti-racist leadership. I don't trust that I'm going to be safe as a black person in that space. Yeah, it's really true. And so yeah. I couldn't participate. So I, I kind of had to choose, do I want to be a woman or do I, because I was in the Mark DeMoz multiracial church spaces oh and those places are straight misogynists. Okay. But not only that, Mark and I have had conversations about this. And so I'm sure like, I'm not saying anything that I haven't already said to him that the reality of those spaces, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know his journey really since George Floyd. My guess is that he's he's probably had a journey since then, and we haven't talked since then. But in the early iterations of those spaces, he was really just trying to get them to do kind of the 1990s version of racial it reconciliation. Was just, and, it, and it was just exponential, like but go make hug it a black person. It was exponential, but make it multiracial. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it was, it, yes, it was actually it. Was, it. Yeah. It was church growth. It was cap. It was, it was corporate church growth, right. but let's, let's make it multiracial in every space, but the leadership. Wow. And let me just say, I mean, right? one of our conversations yeah. that I had with him was that, you know, look, if you're going to do this, if you're going to lead people into multi-ethnic church relationship, you have to be dealing with the systems and the structures that your people of color are dealing with when they are not inside your four walls. Yeah, and that was and not happening. Yeah, no, I mean, it was not. And he no, literally said, I mean, that's not going to happen. He literally yeah. said that. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm out. Yeah, and, and those were like very, you know, he was he was really in alignment with like the Matt Chandlers of the world and stuff. So, there, so those were very anti-woman spaces. And I remember mm. being on those stages and be walk, mm. I'd be walking up to the podium and one of the other speakers would say, I don't agree with you even speaking here. As I'm walking up to the podium, another one, as I was wow. walking up to the podium said, can you go get me some water? I think I was there. I was there for that. I was there for when they said, I don't agree with you speaking here. Yeah, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. 
that I was in those. So I, I, and I'm, I'm like 34, you know, just trying to figure everything out. And so I, I kind of had to choose, do I want to be black or do I want to be female? I chose black because that felt, that felt the most salient to me in that moment. Mm -hmm. But then once me too came around and Trump got elected, well, at first when Trump was running, my thought was, Oh, like he's saying all these racist things. He's saying all these xenophobic things. And I was not surprised at all when the evangelical church supported him because I was Mm -hmm. like, they're racist. They've been racist. I don't, I, but when he started talking about assaulting white women, I was like, okay. Cause in my head, like white femininity is like a free to the spirit to those people, you know? (laughs) And so like, I was like, no way. Like they are going to come for him. He is coming for their precious white women. And yeah. I was shocked when <laughs> the evangelicals were like, nope, we still support him. He, it's just locker room talk. I was shocked. And that's, and I think that was like the final wake up because I was like, up until this point, I've had a lot of issues with white Jesus, right. but now I have issues with male Jesus. Oh, snap. Okay. So I got to take a break here because we are almost <laughs> at 30 minutes. We didn't even take a break because we we're like, this is so fire. So these are our stories <laughs> you are listening to the freedom road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice okay keep going <laughs> yeah so i think you know that w- the run-up to the election really was like probably the that's that's when i realized my female body and my black body are not safe in these spaces. And these people do not have the spiritual imagination to see the sacredness in me. Okay. So now that brings me, that brings me to really kind of where I want to sit for a minute here. I want to sit on the black Madonnas because you took a pilgrimage to find Mm -hmm. the black Madonnas. And this Mm -hmm. has really reshaped, I believe it's reshaped your faith. It's given you tons Mm -hmm. of wisdom. I do want to say, I think it's like, there's some significance to the Madonna figure itself that I want to also talk about with you and, and get like your thoughts on that. But can you just tell us first about this pilgrimage that you took and what was the for it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's late 2016. I'm just reeling from the election. Like everybody was, you know? Um, and I just said, I have to find an image of the divine that's black and female, like black Jesus. I'd read cone. I'd read Kelly Brown Douglas. Like I, you know, and that was so nourishing to me, Mm -hmm. but I said, I need a Jesus who gets my blackness and my femaleness. Mm, mm. <laughs> and so I was just like, where can I find that? You know? And so then I just started researching. And so, and I, mm. I, I didn't have to look far because, you know, within moments, you know, on an online search, I found the black Madonna and the, mo- the, I saw one picture of her online and my entire physiology changed. And I realized wow. I had been holding in my breath my whole life. I exhaled in a way that I never had my whole life. And I finally said, oh, that's, there it is. I'm sacred too. Oh my God. Like I'm divine too. I can find myself in the divine. The divine isn't the opposite of me. Mm. 
the divine is me mm. and with me and stands for me and understands. And so I spent, I, you know, at the time I was faculty at Duke. So I was doing a lot of research on the black Madonna did that for a couple years almost. Okay. Um, but then I was like, I have to go see her face to face because yeah. part of my journey into the sacred feminine was also a journey into embodiment. Because yes. the white patriarchal religion wants us to stay in our head and like a wanna memorize verses. Hello. <laughs> and um, wait, can I just say this is really critical to the decolonizing process? Yeah. Because what mm-hmm. it means to getting be, out of our heads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what it means to be colonized is to be disconnected. Yes, absolutely. It's to be disconnected yeah. from the land, mm-hmm. from your own story, from your people, from 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 reality, quite honestly, yeah. from the actual, mm-hmm. and it all lives up here. That's how one mm-hmm. is colonized. So your your journey has literally been one of being reconnected to self yep. and to land. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, no, and so it just went hand in hand. I was, as I was learning more about the Black Madonna, I was learning about sacred feminine spiritualities and theologies. And um, it's just the the sacred feminine way is an entirely different way. You know, with your body, you know, in community, it's non-hierarchical. Everyone, everyone has their own personal connection to the divine source. Um, You don't need priests. You know, there, there's no, there's no interlocutors or any, anyone that's an intermediary between wow. you and the divine. It's just a very different wow. way of thinking. And so, um, so is it I, Christian? I knew, like, is this Christian? Are we talking yeah, about some of, Yeah. A lot of them are. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it just depends. I mean, what it's, it's interesting because you can see common themes in all the patriarchal religions and you can see yeah. common themes in all of the divine feminine religions. So like, oh. if you look at like divine feminine um, interpretations of the Trinity or something like that, then right. you'll see, um, you'll still see a lot more embodiment and like a lot more of an emphasis on mutuality and a, a deeper mm-hmm. connection between life and death and realizing they're the same thing. And got it. And so, yeah, yeah. so that's when I was just like, and I, you know, I have to go see them because I already wow. felt in my body just from the pictures yeah. from books that my body longed to be near them. And so yeah. I, you know, I, I still, I, I was still faculty at Duke for just a little bit longer. So I, I used some professional development money. So Duke did pay for that first um, pilgrimage. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Duke. And yeah, thanks. Yeah. It's the least they can do. Um, and then um, I don't know any French. <laughs> But I found that there's a hot spot of Black Madonnas in this region of France that's right in the middle. And it's actually called the Auvergne region. And it's like very, it's very out of the way. It's it's beautiful. It's like um, a chain of 27 or so volcanic mountains. So it's just this gorgeous, wow. um, but it's like not near Paris and nobody, and it's called deep France, kind of like the deep South. It's very French. It's kind of old, old school. And, but- French. Yes. Very French. Nobody speaks, hardly anybody speaks English in that region. So it's not like going to Paris where you can just, you know, move through. Well, they might be able to speak English in Paris, but they choose not to. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, Um, but in this, in this region, people are just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, And so (laughs) I, but I just knew, so there were, there were like, there are probably 40 or 45 black Madonnas in this region. And this region has had 40, 45, my God. Yeah, and yeah, because I wanted to walk to them. And so I was able to, and within like a walking radius, I could get to a lot of them. Wow. And so I just picked up and went. My God, 
Are you kidding me? Yeah. That just, and started walking. And so you uh, went by yourself. There was no guide. I went by there myself. No, no. Wow. there's this. Yeah. Yeah. And the route that I took is just a route that I, I made up. And so, okay. um, what did they I, teach but you? I knew I needed to see them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what did you learn from the black Madonnas? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there, there are a lot of things that I learned. I mean, each black Madonna has her own story. Like in my book, mm-hmm. I say they're kind of like Marvel superheroes. Like they have their own origin stories. And so, and they're <laughs> all, they're all known for doing different types of miracles. Wow. And so, you know, when I came face to face with the, one of the black Madonnas of Mund, which is an Occitanian in Southern France. Um, you know, she's called Our Lady the Fountain. I call her she whose thick thighs save lives because whenever, <laughs> whenever I got to a Black Madonna, I just allowed my Pentecostal background to speak life into the interaction. Oh, and wow. I was like, what do you have for me? Speak. Wow, yes. Spirit, yes. speak you know? And, um, she's a black Madonna who really helped me to look at my body a real, a different way, because she is this like super like big boned, thick thighed black Madonna. She's black. um, She's black girl. She's super dark skinned, you know, like dark chocolate colored. And, um, you know, so each one, I was kind of bringing a part of myself that had been fractured by by colonialism and offering it to her and allowing her to speak to that particular part of my identity that needed wow. to be made whole. And so, you know, I, I met she who cherishes our hot mess and I met like, <laughs> um, and I met no like, way. Um, our lady okay. of the side eye. And I met, you know, so there are all of these <laughs> black Madonnas that, and so it's interesting because on each, on with each black Madonna, I, most of them, I came up with my own name for them in addition. Yeah. So they have these traditional names, but I found out after the fact that the Madonna is known for being named and like there, and actually there are tens of thousands of names for the black Madonna because the black Madonna is kind of the opposite of the way we understand like the Judeo-Christian God who kind of shows up on the scene and says, I am that I am and proclaims a lot of things about himself. The black Madonna is much more interested in mutuality. And so the black Madonna is like, okay, let's do this dance together. And how do you, how, how do you need me to show up in your life? So name me based on your need. What? Yeah. And that's, wow. that's, I mean, that goes back to, I mean, thousands of yeah. years. I found a prayer, a, an old Eastern Orthodox prayer that's from the fourth century in it. There are hundreds of names for the black Madonna. And it's just, and it's, it's like a seven, it takes 17 minutes to pray the whole prayer. Wait for y'all who can't see like, me. My jaw is on the ground right now. Like, and seriously. it's all just, and it's all just names for her. And some of them are just like, they're just so beautiful. And like one, one of my favorites is the, the enclosure of the God whom nothing can enclose. So there's just these like illustrious, wow. gorgeous names. But then you go, you know, you, you go all over the world and there are black Madonnas called slave mama. And there what? are black, yeah, there are black. Okay, so Madonna's, you have to break yeah. that one down for me because I'm not really buying that one. She Slave is, mama? she the? is the mother of the enslaved people and helps them get liberated. She's okay. actually, I can go with that. especially <laughs> associated with LGBTQ folks really? and their liberation. Uh-huh. From, wow. yeah. So it's, it's a liberation what? title. Yeah. It's yes. not, it's not a mammy okay. title. It's yeah. See, that's what it. Now, you know, that's where I was going. It was the whole, it's giving Harriet Tubman. It's giving Harriet Tubman. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's I get got out. that. Yeah. Let's so, get so, out. so they're all these names and that's, and that goes back hundreds and even thousands of years. Huh. So it, it's interesting that my own spirituality sort of just invited me into that, but then to go and to see, this is actually probably, this is part of the spirituality of the black Madonna. And can I just say real quickly that before, like if, if this goes back to the, what is you said, the fourth century, it's the three hundreds. This is really before European colonization of Christianity. It's before. Yeah. So yes. Well, the black Madonna is sort of the effect of that. So, oh. um, yeah. So, so for example, the Black Madonna of Lapui. So if you've heard of the Camino de right, Santiago, right, 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 right. The, the French start to it is actually in Lapui, Southern France. And there's a Black Madonna right there. Oh. Um, she has been there at least since the fourth century. But the thing is, is that there was a lot of dark goddess, probably Isis or Chibele worship mm-hmm. there. And when the Catholic Church came and gentrified the area and colonized the area, they wanted to eradicate the goddess worship. And the Catholic bishop in the fourth century actually didn't want to just eradicate it. Like he he completely demolished the temple to the dark goddess. Because these were all like pre-Roman Gallic oh, yeah. people, right? Well, let me just also say very quickly that, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but just to say it for our, our listeners, that that Southern European region had a lot of African trade. Not Tons. slave trade, Tons. but there was yeah. a lot of interaction with Africa. Yeah, and the Moors occupied right. this region for 800 years, right? That's right. So, and so, wow. so, so this particular Black Madonna is, the, the bishop came, demolished the temple of the dark goddess, built the cathedral right on top of it. So the cathedral where everyone starts the Camino is right on top of the ancient goddess temple. And so the people just said, okay, fine. We'll just continue our goddess worship with the black Madonna. Right. So she's actually in the lineage of Isis or one of one of the North African goddesses. It's unclear. So wow. that's that's how some of them came to be. But some of them were actually brought by Jesus's disciples because they understood the Black Madonna to be Mary. Yes, exactly. And Mary was blackity black. So actually what's interesting is um, Mark, Mark wow. and Luke are the two disciples who are most, who were like the big Black Madonna devotees. And so wow. like the black, the famous Black Madonna of Poland supposedly was painted by Luke. So she's a painting. Um, and she was painted by Luke on a table built by Joseph, the father of Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's the lore. So, I mean, like, you know, that's the story. It, but then a lot of the Black Madonnas were actually brought to s- this part of Europe by Mark and Mark's disciples. And Mark was Libyan. And so Mark was blackity black. So Mark was African people. Yeah. Mark was an African people person. Okay. Oh my God. What? Why do we not know these things? Yeah. Actually, I didn't learn that about Mark until I started doing research on the black Madonna. I never learned that in any of my church spaces, but Mark was Libyan, Libyan. And actually went back to Libya after the, after the, after the resurrection, but then he ended up going to Southern France and some of these areas and bringing the black Madonna with him. And then some of them are just black. Like there's a black Madonna in Orléans outside Paris 
who's Syrian, the Syrians brought her in the fifth and they were Syrian Christians in the fifth right. century. Right. So like, it's like some of them come from these older goddess wow. lineages. Some of them come from black and brown Christians. Right. Um, some of them come from the Holy Land during the Crusades. So the later ones that came in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, mm -hmm. it just depends. And some of them were just made from black rock. And so they're black. Right. And so it's like, you know, wow. yeah. So I, I, I want to know, I want to know, like, what are the most salient lessons that you've learned by from the Black Madonnas about God, God's self? What have yeah. they taught you about God? Yeah. Oh, wow. So many things. Um, mm -hmm. I would say the, the most, I think the thing that I carry with me, two, two things I carry with me that I think have changed my entire not just theology, but spirituality and like the way that I moved, not just my, like what I would say, this is what I believe about God, yeah. but like, this is how I am in the world because of this relationship. So the one I would right. say is I'm too sacred for this about just about everything. So like, <laughs> so like once I, um, once I finally yeah. found myself in the body of the black Madonna, yeah. I realized I was putting up with a whole lot of shenanigans yeah. that's frankly, I'm just too sacred for. That's right. And so I remember being on my pilgrimage, wrapping it up and thinking I can go home and write a book and it'll be super cute. Or I can go home and transform my entire life based on the sacredness that I've found here. And that means I don't have to work on the Duke plantation anymore because I'm too sacred for that. I'm too sacred for this. This means there's a bunch of relationships in my life that mm. I'm too sacred for. Too this sacred. means that, I love that, you know, just so, and then, so that's one thing I would mm -hmm. say, like I, and one of my team members said, if there's anything I've learned working with you is that I'm too sacred for everything. <laughs> she, <laughs> no, she, you know, so that's contagious, right? Yes, but then I yes. think the other thing that is that if God, if God is a black woman, then how does that change everything? Yeah. And so for me, yeah. it's like, if God is a black woman, first of all, it's handled. <laughs> I love that. Like, yeah, like I, I don't have to be out here controlling everything. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be out here being attached to the outcome. So controlling my siblings, controlling mm -hmm. the, the people in the church communities I used to be mm -hmm. shaming, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. this idea, like it with the black, the black Madonna can connect with everybody on her own terms. Right. So she doesn't need me out that's here right. telling people that they're wrong, which is yeah. exactly what I, my impulse is. Cause that's what I've been taught by patriarchy, right? Leaders, spiritual leadership is control and authority. That's what spiritual leadership is, right? Mm. Telling people what to do. Basically. <laughs> and doing it in a way that doesn't crush them necessarily. That's the best kind of leadership anyway, but yes, yes. Telling, telling people what to do. So that's, that's, so I think that's been, so a lot of times it's like, you know, should I, should I take this, sh should I take this opportunity that will bring in some resources, but it's with an organization that can't see my full sacredness. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Let me stop. If God is a black woman, then she's going to provide and she doesn't need me to hide part of myself in order to live. And so that it's just changed my whole, my practice of faith. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember before feeling like I couldn't really trust this white male guy, but then being like, oh, well, Christina, like, oh, you have little faith, you know, like you need to just muster up some more faith or go fast or do something. And now I'm like, no, I actually believe that this God sees me and knows me and is with me and is on my side and is going to provide for me and doesn't need me to cut off my arm 
in order to be accepted by these people who don't really want to accept me. So I would say that in terms of my spirituality, but I think in terms of like my theology, there's just Mm -hmm. a lot more, um, a lot more open. Like, so I want to, I want to know how does this feel in my sacred black feminine body? Yes. Instead of what, what have I been taught? Or what Mm. is going to be a, what, what are people going to approve of? Or, you know, the ways of knowing were always what's tradition, what do, what does the establishment want and Mm -hmm. what can I prove? And I think, I mean, for me, when I think of this, it actually, it intersects so, or actually it parallels, maybe even overlaps. Actually, it does overlap with my understanding of the image of God. Like the reason why you are too sacred for this is because you two are made in the image of the divine of God. And what, I mean, some scholars now are actually doing some amazing work on the, the Europeification of the image of God, basically the, the deep, the colonization of the image of God that they're kind of placing in the enlightenment period. But I would actually, I take it all the way back to Rome and, and the Greek empire. You don't, you don't, you don't find, you don't find the impetus, the, the belief that I should be leading everywhere I am and I need to be the one who conquers all anywhere in Europe until you have that Greek empire. Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where, that's where it comes from. So you got to go, you can go back to like 300 BC and yeah. that's where you start to find those first impetuses of the only ones who are truly human are the people who are like us, right? And so, yeah. but what you're saying is no, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I too, yeah. I too, am divine. I too am human. I'm fully human. And what that looks like is that I too can rise into exercising dominion in the world. That's how I'm translating this. Yeah. And I think like, um, you know, like I remember loving, like, like loving hearing people talk about the Imago Dei, you know, but, but the way they talked about it was always, yeah, right. Exactly. So I would, I like the idea was amazing, Mm -hmm. but the practice and the communication of it was it's only reserved for whiteness and maleness. That's right. Well, let me just say that that's why I don't use the language Imago Dei. That's imperial language. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hipster. It's, but it's, it's imperial. It literally comes from Rome. It comes from the people that crucified Jesus, like, you know, Brown Mm -hmm. colonized indigenous Jesus was crucified by the, who was Palestinian and and Aramaic. Yeah. So it's just, well, I mean, we lost so much of Jesus when he was translated into Greek. Yes. There's just a huge gap between what, what Jesus actually verbally said, because the, the, because Aramaic is a really mystical, feminine, open, mutual, mutuality based. It's all possibilities that right. is a dance between the listener and the speaker to, to together come up with the meaning. I mean, it's totally different than, wow. than Greek, which is yeah. very top down, very authoritarian all about, um, redu- reductive, you know, like yep. very, it's the language of the empire, right? So there's so much that we lost yeah. that the people who were listening to Jesus understood that we don't, we just, it's just not there for us anymore. Yeah. It's not there for us anymore because we've been, we've been reading Jesus through the lens of empire rather than reading empire through the lens of Brown colonized Palestinian Jesus. Amen. Walking freedom road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the freedom road podcast. (laughs) 
Okay, so Christina, you left the academy. You kind of talked a little bit about that. You kind of like, you know, and you started your own learning community on Patreon, which I love. And it's actually more than Patreon. It's actually way beyond that now. But what did you see in the academy that led you to walk away? Oh, um, well, there's a lot I like about the academy, but I I think after when I left, I had been I had been a professor for 11 years. So and it was always kind of like a like don't love just in terms of the profession. I love teaching. I don't I don't do institutions. Mm-hmm. That's not my personality. I'm just like a hundred percent prophetic. And so I just don't, I just really struggle with institutions. And mm-hmm. there were, you know, there's just a lot that, get that, um, so even, even when I was at schools that weren't as horrible as Duke, where, where I was at the end, um, because <laughs> yes. I did have, I did have more pot. I mean, over my 11 years and only four of them were at Duke, I did have more positive mm-hmm. academic experiences, but even okay. when I was there, I was always like oh, teaching, but you know, it's like, it's fine. Um, I, so part, part of my leaving was just like, oh, this is my first career. And I've, I've, I feel like I've, it's run its course, but then at the time I was also at Duke, which was just, um, a very toxic and colonial space. Mm. And that's common. The more prestigious you go in academia, the more you deal with that. And I just felt like, I remember being, so I, uh, early before I did my black Madonna pilgrimage, but soon mm-hmm. after I got to Duke, I remember going to Kolkata for work. Actually, I was, cause at the time I was the director of the center for reconciliation at Duke. So I was in Kolkata right. on a work trip and I got up really early in the morning to go and do morning prayer at, um, the convent that mother Teresa had run. Right. Um, and then afterwards, and it's, it's still, it's before dawn still. Cause their prayer is like at three 30 in the morning or whatever. Right. And, um, I get back to the hotel and I'm like, you know what, now would be a really good time to go running because Kolkata is just chaotic. And so you oh, can't yeah. run when the city's alive, you'll die. You'll literally oh my die. God. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, I'm awake. Like, let's just do, let's get a run in. And I remember running around and seeing, so much poverty, so much devastation. I mean, you know, Kolkata is all the things, right? But all, a lot of it is pain. And I'm yeah. very attuned to that. And I remember running and just being like, there's too much pain and injustice in the world. And I'm too good at justice and healing to waste my time with Duke. Wow. <laughs> like I had, and this was like, I think two years before I actually left, you know, but I just remember it was almost like my Harriet Tubman moment. Cause I remember when I, I mean, I don't remember, but I imagine like Harriet Tubman's like raised on this plantation. She's taught that like, that's right. The, the only way to survive is to be the best Negro on the plantation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she doesn't have any language or imagination for life off the plantation. She doesn't even know what life is like on off the plantation. She doesn't know if she has transferable skills or yeah. anything, but one morning she woke up and was like, I'm too sacred for this. That's right. you know, and <laughs> and then, but I wonder too, like what was the what was the time from when she had that realization to when she actually felt connected enough to the North Star to leave? Ah, like that whole, and I feel like that's been my what? that's my journey, right? So it's like I had that awakening moment where yes! I'm like, like the world, <laughs> like I can meet a need in the world. Not that, not that the world yes. needs lots of people doing justice, right? It's not like I'm the savior of justice, but yeah. I have a role to play that is like infinitely valuable. And I did not want to be held back by the plantation. Girl, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But at the same time, I also wasn't ready. I didn't feel brave enough to bounce. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like an awakening process, right? It's like, and you're shoring up and you're, because there's no way you can be fully prepared to leave. 
But at some point you just get to the place where you're like, I just have to take that step into the unknown. And yes. I'm just gonna, and she said, she called it the North star, right? For me as the black Madonna. Like That's I right. trust that there's a God who sees me and relates wow. to me and has got my back. I don't know how, I don't know what, what survival is going to look like. I don't know who my people are. That's right. I don't know yeah. what the language is. Hmm. I just know there's a North star. And if I keep my eye on the North star, I can walk. But that, that was a, that was a multi-year process. And I imagine it was for her too. We don't know. Right. But I imagine that's what the hush Harbor was probably right. She was going out to those hush Harbor meetings every night, every day, every night she'd come back a little more radicalized. Yes. (laughs) Yes. A little more brave. Right. Like exactly a little bit more connected to abundance and a little bit more like these shenanigans. Oh no. No, like <laughs> a little much, a little more like I'm too divine for this. Hello. Yeah. Just, I don't care yes. what happens to me off the plantation. It's got to be better than what's happening to me on the plantation. The thing is what you're describing. I am sure I am positive that what you are describing is actually, it's a phenomenon. It's something that a lot of us who have been mm-hmm. in white yeah. space, actually, who have, who have come up in white space and you kind of have to make a decision at some point whether or not you're going to take the jump. For me, the word was literally jump. And that was like, um, Bishop blunder. I was, I was at a spiritual retreat. Oh, that's a good, that's a good prophet. You know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Who actually knows something. And I had never met her before. She's awesome. She told me she was almost my aunt. What? She said, she said, (laughs) oh no, no, wait. She told, when I ran into her, she said, I, I can't remember. She's, I think she, she dated my grandfather. They went on like one date or something. And so she said, I, I was, she's like, I could be your grandmother. She said, she's Oakland, you know, Oakland, black, yes. black people. Yeah. Yeah. So There's, it's not but that yeah. big. They all knew each other, especially yeah. back then. And yeah, she was totally, that big yeah. that she knew your person who was that big. So yeah, yeah. it's hilarious. That. Yeah. She was like, I could be your grandmother. She <laughs> <laughs> walked up to me. We were in a, we were in a prayer group this one time <laughs> and she walked up to this prayer group. Literally she was, it was her first day, first mm. time at the um, Auburn Senior Fellows Retreat. And it was mm. only my second time, right? And you had this great circle of people who now we were supposed to be in a peer prayer time for each other and like peer support. And she walks up and she says, I have a word for you. I have not ever even spoken to this lady before. And she said, I have a word for you. And I said, oh no, okay, okay. And she says, the word from the Lord for you is jump. And I was like, my jaw dropped because at that time I had just come through four months of asking God to make it clear, God, make it clear so that I could make a move. I didn't know, but I had a real sense, just like you, that I wasn't supposed to be in this place anymore. I knew I wasn't supposed to be here anymore, but I didn't know that I knew and I needed God to make it really clear. And so it only took one month after that. Oh, but then she came up, she came up with a, this is deep, she came up with a, with a, a follow-up word. She said, wait, I have a follow-up word. <laughs> I was like, I never heard a follow-up word from, from Jesus. <laughs> I have a follow-up word from the Lord. And this is what it is. It is, this is the word from God. I cannot catch you until you jump. Hmm. This reminds me, right? Yeah. Right. And this is where like Kelly Brown Douglas, who said, Christ is a black woman. Anytime black women are out there bringing flourishing to the world. Like that yeah. was, that was Bishop Flunder being Christ, black That's female right. Christ to you. Right. Yeah, and, That's right. That's right. And it's That's like, right. in the fact that we have been taught that that's not 
Legitimate. Like holy legitimate. Like that, that's ridiculous to me, you know, but yeah, that's what we were taught. And we were taught, we were really taught we go there. We were really taught to give authority, to assume the authority of white men who would, who would speak to us in this way. If a white man came up to me and told me, I have a word from you. I better, you know, trust that. Like that's trustable. That's doesn't matter who that white man is, you know, especially a white man who is a big, you know, star or mega church person or whatever, no matter how many people he's raped behind the scenes or, or fondled behind the scenes or whatever. No, that man has authority, but you have a black woman who is, who is lesbian. And she comes up to me and she has a word from the Lord and no, 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 that can't be God. No, no, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. That it's, it's no longer, that was absolutely God. God spoke to me through a black lesbian woman. And I think that, and when I did make that jump, God caught me. Yeah. Sounds like God caught you too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so grateful in every way. And I can't, you know, I, it's the joy, the freedom, the purpose. I mean, it's just a complete, I mean, it's, everything's changed. So when you like, you think about the rising generations, you know, millennials are not really rising anymore. They're, they're actually We're they're, old. They're in their forties. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. That's your generation. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I'm the so, oldest of the millennials. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And then yeah. you think of the Z's that are coming behind and even beyond them, my, my niece and she's not even Z. I don't think she's like the next generation after that. Mm-hmm. What's that double A? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but like, yeah. what do you think are the strengths that, that these generations are bringing? Oh could- my gosh. This came up in one of my learning communities just yesterday. Yeah. Cause we're doing this, like, um, uncovering your race story, particularly looking at the shame in our race stories oh, okay. and someone t- we've, we, we've been, we've been looking at lots of different aspects, but one of the things we've been looking at is our names oh. and how our names depending on whether there are true names or not, can engender shame or a sense of belonging. And Mm. someone said, you know, I I wish I could change my name. And this was someone who I think is not a Gen Zer. And so I I actually commented and said, you know, one of the things I'm learning from Gen Zers is uh, you can decide who you want to (laughs) be. You can decide your name. And I think we all really, really, really can learn from that. Um, whether we officially change our names or not, there's something I love about Gen Z where they're, they're just naturally suspicious of the establishment. And they're like, I'm not going to let you tell me who I am in any way. Um, and I'm going to define for myself and I'm going to start creating categories that don't even exist totally true. because the existing categories don't work for me, you know, and they, they, it feels like they came up with an understanding mm-hmm. that I am too sacred for this. Exactly. They really did. And that there are limitations to the existing world order. Yeah. There are limitations. Yeah. Whereas I think we were taught mm-hmm. the existing world order is legitimate. Is the way it is. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn it and master it. Uh-huh. Exactly. First, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so I think there's something, it feels very prophetic, the way that they move through the world, the Gen Zers, mm-hmm. um, because they are interested in asking questions that, that, that they haven't been taught to ask and actually have maybe been taught not to ask. They're interested in imagining possibilities that go beyond what's physically re- real or f- the physical reality. Wow. Um, and, and I think they're also interested in collaboration. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot less um, individualism and a lot more coalition building, even in just very informal ways. 
And so, I mean, I think there's so much that we can learn. I love working with Gen Zers. They tell me all the time, like I'm old and not cool. You know, it's great. Isn't that funny? Um, yeah, oh it's my hilarious. Gosh. I was talking to one of my peers the other day who's in the engineering world. So, you know, totally different. But he, so uh, one of the Gen Zers said, okay, boomered him the other day. And he was like, uh, first of all, I'm not a boomer. Like I'm oh, literally wow. 40. <laughs> oh my but gosh. Also, you know, yeah. You know, just hilarious, you know. And they like, literally skip over my generation of Gen X. They're like, oh, Gen, Gen X, Gen X doesn't about? even exist. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, yeah. I will just, I will, I will set the record straight. Gen X is the generation of hip hop. Hello, somebody. That's true. That's true. You can't even watch mm-hmm. the Grammys right now without giving homage to Gen X. Hello, That's somebody. true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We gave you a lot, people. Do not skip over us. So I want to also know, what are the challenges that you think, you know, these next generations will have based on what oh. their experience of the world has been? We need to focus on strengthening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's easy to dismantle and burn down. It's really yeah. hard to build. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think they'll yeah. they'll struggle with hopelessness. Mm-hmm. because some of those skills it's just it's just a whole lot harder to rebuild especially with the existing structures doing everything they can to prevent you from building so I think that'll true. be a challenge um I also think you know just the economy like I I'm definitely so I'm the oldest of the millennials and in this way I think I, I um, relate more to Gen Zers in the sense that I went to college and have basically been gainfully employed as much as I've wanted to be since then mm-hmm. right so this mm-hmm. the younger millennials are it's a totally different story right they've had mm-hmm. they've been in and out of work there's been a lot more the the, the um you know, home ownership and like um, the economy has been basically terrible. Mm -hmm. And so getting laid off a lot and having a job for a while and also having jobs that are kind of like below their edge, below their training, right. Just Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so Mm -hmm. I think part of it is just going to be like, they're actually living in a later stage of capitalism than we were. And so building enough wealth to actually just live, right. Not to like dominate the world, but just like, Have, you know, to have, have enough, have, have a place so that you can't. Cause I mean, I have a lot of privilege, like walking away from Duke was something that I had the privilege of doing. I, yeah. I understand that there are plenty of black women who are working on plantations that are a lot worse than Duke hmm. that could never just walk away. Hmm. And wow. so as these Gen Zers are trying to create these experimental, you know, communities and experimental positions and all these sorts of things, the question is like, you know, how is that going to be sustainable? Because there's so much economic insecurity yes. in, in what they're dealing with. So, I mean, I think, I think if there's any generation that can handle that, that's them because they have imagination. And I think imagination is theology. And so they can, they can, they can find the ways to connect with abundance. But I think that will be a challenge because it's a lot easier to walk away from a job like Duke when you have a pretty well set up retirement plan that you've been putting money into and you have a home and you have, and you're connected to other people who have resources, who always have a spare room. If any right. event that you needed one, right. I right. will never be homeless. Right. Because right. I'm con- right. even, even if it's just because I'm connected to people who have resources. Right. Yeah, that's so, exactly right. Wow. I mean, it's just um, it's yeah, it's it's challenging to be an anarchist <laughs> when they're when you don't have any resources. You know, you talked about our kind of, you know, late stage capitalism. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Break that down. What yeah. Do you that? I mean, I think cap, I mean, I think capitalism has gotten like more and more exploitative as mm-hmm. as it has uh 
it's like the monster that's just grown, you know? And so, I mean, the jobs that people are getting when they're coming out of college, it's like $25,000 a year. Like you, you can't, you can't even live at your parents' house on that. No way. Plus pay school loans, you know? And so I think it's just the bigger and bigger corporations that are more and more exploitative. And I honestly, I really think all it is at least this is from my perspective. Mm-hmm. It's just now middle class people are dealing with poor people with with what poor people have always dealt with, right? Because oh. because my friends who've grown up their entire lives and so you cannot they always knew I'm going to work sixty hours a week and not even barely be able to pay rent. That's but what's right. happening now is college educated people are finding that's also true for them, and that's so right. like the exploitation has always been there. It's just spreading. Wow. It's spreading into the middle class. And it's spreading as the middle class shrinks, Mm -hmm. right? So we're having fewer Mm -hmm. and fewer actual middle class. And it's okay. That's actually really helpful. And what our parents, I don't know if this is what your, my middle class parents were like, go to college and get a good job. That's totally 100%. A middle class black parent could tell their kids to do that now. And there's, there's no guarantee that their kids will have any financial security. Well, let me just say, I think part, Part of the reason for this, and I think you probably discovered this as you left the plantation and started your own business, like you started a business, a fee-for-service business. So when we think about how businesses are more exploitative now, is that because of our previous middle-class understanding of what it looks like to become safe, to become um, solid? It is actually to get that job to have that career. Certainly it's not like the boomers where they would be in the same job forever. I don't think we've actually had that since the, the, my generation, the Xers mm-hmm. never had that, but mm-hmm. it, it is to actually have a career that offers stability. Mm-hmm. When you, when you join somebody else's project, when you are not your own entrepreneur, when you are not setting the standards for your pay, and determining the value of your work, then you are beholden to people who put a value on your work and a cap on that value. So you actually have, and I don't know that this is the case, but but for that upcoming um, Z generation, and, and I'd say for, for the lower, like the younger millennials, if they are looking to prosper, to, to have abundance in the in, within that, big box capitalist system, they are not going, it's not going to happen because those big box capitalist systems Mm -hmm. exist to feed themselves, not the workers. Is that kind of what you're talking Mm -hmm. about? Is that what you're, what you see? Yeah. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. And I remember when I started my business, the words, I mean, uh, this conversation was probably yeah. 12, maybe even more years ago, Saint Brenda Salter McNeil was yes! got me on the phone. I was a little munchkin and I had just started out my speaking and she, she took the time to drop wow. some wisdom on me. And she said, I remember I was sitting in my car parked on the street in St. Paul's about to go in to do something with a friend. And, but she was talking to me. So I was wow. sitting there listening and she said, Christina, when you set your prices for speaking, remember it's ministry, but it's also a business. Yes. She told me the same thing. She was my she's, mentor too. Oh, she's a wise, she's a wise woman. She yeah. I mean, is. you're lucky. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I had little bits of conversations, but anytime I, yeah. I got a chance to learn from her, I did. Yes. And, um, you know, and I think that's something that black women need to keep telling other black women, you're worth mm-hmm. it. You're too sacred for this. 
you're too sacred for you're this. You're too mess. sacred for this. And let me just say that one yeah. of the things that that I learned that helped me to move into this business space and be able to set my own value was understanding that the nonprofit world where I had grown up, like that was my entire work life was in the nonprofit world. It does not pay, almost as a rule, it does not pay the full value of your work. It only pays you a, a portion of the value of your work. And it doesn't pay market value. Even if we're just looking at market, like, you know, even in that market thing, it doesn't pay market value. And so what does it say then that the majority the, the largest employer of people of African descent in the United States is the nonprofit world. Yeah. So, and don't even get me started on like the mammy industrial complex in hello. the nonprofit world, because all wow. these white ladies are making money and all these black women are not. And that's another wow. thing I learned about the black Madonna. I am not your mammy. So. Oh. Okay. Talk to me. About I that. am nobody's number two because white men yes. love to have a powerful excellent black woman right behind them, propping yes. them up, making them brilliant. Yes. And I'm like, I'm tired of being your number two. Yeah. I did that three times. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I, I never did that yeah. officially, but I played that role a lot in churches, right. Mm. Where I would be on the preaching team or I'd be one of the head leaders and all the, I had more brilliance than my pinky than the senior pastor had in his entire body. What? Okay. No disrespect to him, but you I'm amazing. Get me in trouble, girl. And he was mediocre, <laughs> and so that's just a fact. Let's and just, let's and I was just like, is. she's not your number two. Yeah, that's she's right. nobody's number two. She is the kind of leader who makes people uncomfortable because she is black and actually in charge, not uh. su not supporting the white man, the mediocre white man. Yes. But that's the whole that's the whole industrial complex of the nonprofit world and ministry mm -hmm. world, I would say. It is. It is 100%. Have, have, have a brilliant black woman who spends all of her time actually wears herself out supporting your vision for no accolades and definitely no pay. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're out of time, but <laughs> the conversations <laughs> leaders have on the road to justice. <laughs> This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Hello, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests um, are laying their head that night. This episode was engineered and edited and produced by uh, Corey Nathan of Scan Media. And Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. And so you can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us, and stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which, by the way, are now on Substack. So Freedom Road is on Substack. Please go to Substack <laughs> to sign up for Freedom Road's newsletter. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And so we invite you to listen again and have a really special treat. For those on Patreon, we're going to have a special behind the scenes quick combo with my friend, Christina Cleveland. So join us again on, the, on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.